Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you have insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. How do you know you're not overpaying? HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a technology company that securely connects with your insurance and reviews your claims for overbilling, wrong codes, and even fraud. To date, HealthLock has saved its members over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds. We're on vacation this week, but that doesn't mean we don't have an amazing show for you today. The New York Times columnist and author of The Uninhabitable Earth, David Wallace-Wells, will talk to us about the latest on climate change. But first, we have Will Rollins, who is running for the 41st District in California, and he's going to talk to us about his newly announced run for Congress there. Welcome back to Fast Politics, Will Rollins. Thank you so much for having me, Molly. Great to be back. I'm not going to overblow this here, but I think you are the key to Democrats winning back the House. Well, I don't like that much pressure on my shoulders, (laughs) but... No pressure. We are definitely a crucial House race for the House majority. And yeah, we've got a great opportunity to flip this seat next year, no doubt. So tell me what your district is. I know a little bit about it because it's where my dad and my stepmom live, but tell us. Yeah, sure. So this is a new district. Last year was the first time that we had California 41 as it is currently constituted. It used to be a Trump plus seven seat, but in redistricting, it picked up Palm Springs, Rancho Mirage, Palm Desert, La Quinta, Indian Wells, and actually a much more democratic part of the state. So for the first time in Ken Calvert's history in office, he's got a democratic majority electorate. Wow. So let's talk about Ken Calvert. That district is is very liberal. Uh, Your district, Rancho Mirage, Palm Springs, a very progressive group of people. Ken Calvert is not that, huh? No, he's not. I mean, he's traditionally had an extremely conservative seat. And since 1992, he's taken some pretty extreme 
votes on a whole host of issues, whether it's you know a national abortion ban with no exceptions at the federal level, whether it's voting to keep LGBT people out of the military, whether it's recently instead of you know campaigns on inflation, crime, homelessness, and after he wins re-election, you know one of his first votes is to gut the office of congressional ethics. He recently voted to make it harder for our women in uniform to get access to reproductive care. So he's somebody who I think is just really out of step with what people imagine as Southern California and what Southern California really is. So I think that's going to you know, manifest itself when he loses next year. I think a really important thing that we should be talking about is this idea that there really is no space in this Republican Party for moderates anymore. I am always like a little squishy. And so I want in my heart of hearts for a Susan Collins or a, you know, someone like that to be able to make a difference. And in the Senate, it happens more than in the House. But really in the House, all of these Republicans vote in lockstep. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, I come from a family that is split between Republicans and Democrats. And I started my career, first job out of college, as an aide to Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger, even though I was a Democrat. And, you know, he was a guy who hired a bipartisan staff, uh, truly bipartisan staff. And I think genuinely wanted to hear different perspectives when he was making policy decisions. And so much of that has been lost in the Republican Party. And I think Governor Schwarzenegger was talking about this 20 years ago when he said Republicans were dying at the box office and needed to moderate on a whole host of issues. And rather than heeding his advice, they have gone as far to the right as possible. And I think it's pretty remarkable to see people like Ken Calvert think that they can continue to win re-election by telling tens of thousands of his own constituents in the LGBTQ community, for example, that we don't deserve to eat when we get older with his vote this week to defund senior meals for LGBT people. It's, it's remarkable that they think this is a winning political strategy. Politico ran an article on your campaign and it said, a do-over in the desert, California Democrat who almost won seeks a rematch. And I think a lot about the Lauren Boebert challenger, who we also had on this podcast, who lost by 700 votes. And there is an opportunity in 24 for both of you to finish what you've started. Well, yeah. I mean, Tom Springs is like the best part of running for me, but it is <laughs> grueling because of our broken campaign finance system. And I think, you know, I didn't have a, a true sense of how brutal the process was until I did it myself. And so I wasn't sure that I was going to do it again. But we had some great silver lines in the midterms. I mean, ended up being the only challenger in the state of California to win independence as a Democrat and did the best of any House challenger compared to President Biden's performance in 2020 by House District. And so I had a lot of members of Congress reach out to me after the election and tell me their stories of running in a midterm and narrowly losing and coming back and winning it in the presidential year with higher turnout. And so I think that I did not have a choice to run again. I think all Americans who care about our democracy and freedom have to step up to the plate and do everything that each of us has in our own individual power to make sure that this republic continues to stand and that we continue to be 
the leader of the free world in the 21st century. Yeah. And I think that's a really good point, especially when we're so faced with this climate change summer. If the Democrats don't win back the House this fall, we're looking down the barrel of a very likely government shutdown because the House Republicans are completely insane. If Democrats win back the House, there could be more climate legislation and more of the kind of things like the child tax credit and more of the sort of nuts and bolts legislation that the American people really, really like. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think I, you know, come back. It's funny to be a Democratic House candidate continuing to quote a Republican governor like Schwarzenegger. But I mean, what he said about climate change when he was the governor of California, you know, you don't have to just have um, either economic growth or a green economy. You can have both of these things and it's possible to do that in a state like California and in a place like the Coachella Valley, where we really have an opportunity to lead the country and the world in the development of lithium ion batteries, for example, that, that power the green economy globally and that actually make our air cleaner to breathe and a safer planet for all of us. And I think that it, it's not, again, really not just about making sure the planet survives, which of course is our first concern, but making sure our economy grows and that we continue to compete with countries like China, which want to create the foothold in this new economy. And if we have smart leaders who are willing to work hard, roll up their sleeves, I, I know we can make a lot of progress and achieve what we want to for America in this century. So here is my question for you. It looks like 24 is going to be a rematch of Biden v. Trump. Republicans are all in on this kind of insane insanity. I mean, you're on the ground. You're in California. California is a largely liberal state, but there really are pockets of extreme conservatism in California. And since you're running for Congress, everyone is telling you everything they're unhappy about. What are you hearing from voters? The good news is that people are, are unhappy about things that unify us in some ways. They're unhappy that members of Congress are able to trade stocks. I, too, am unhappy about that. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, I think this presents a real opportunity. I, I spent most of my career as a federal prosecutor and, you know, had some great colleagues in the U.S. attorney's office who have prosecuted some incredible public corruption cases out of the Central District of California. And, you know, those cases apply to Republicans and Democrats alike. And I think there's an opportunity, even among some really conservative parts of the state, you know, Canyon Lake, for example, is in my district where my partner and I used to live, one of the most Republican cities in California. No matter whether you got an R or a D behind your last name, if you believe in banning members of Congress from trading stocks, if you believe in a lifetime ban on lobbying, if you believe that corporate PAC contributions should be made illegal, again, that's a process-based type of populism that I think more of us need to be talking about because our government cannot function if corruption continues to seep into the halls of Congress. And you look at, again, somebody like my opponent, whose net worth has gone up by $20 million since he first took office in 92, in part by using earmarks for personal benefit, which has been widely reported, not just by the liberal press, but also by Fox News, by you know the National Review, the Orange County Register. These are not liberal bastions that covered some of his own self-dealing. People are hungry for, I think, reforms that apply to Congress writ large, regardless of party, because they know that gridlock can't really be overcome until we have a government that works for working families. 
when you look at this map, there are not that many seats that Democrats can pick up. There are some seats in New York State. There are a few in California. But this is a very gerrymandered map. So the fact that you have a real opportunity here, I think, is really, really important. Yeah, it is. And I think California and New York, if you look at what happened in the midterms, we actually had lower turnout among Democratic voters in both of those states than we had in red states like Kansas and Alaska. And so when you look under the hood of some of the results from the midterms, and I you know, think about my district in particular, we had about 60% of registered Republicans voting in my district, about 50% of registered Democrats voting in my district, but I only lost by about four points. And so when you look at the ability to overperform in that climate, and I think, you know, I always joke, I don't know whether it means that I'm a good candidate or Calvert is an exceptionally bad candidate. <laughs> Whatever the combination may be, we were able to build a pretty unique coalition in California 41 that got a lot of independents and moderate Republicans over to our side, including, you know, the former assembly Republican leader in California, the former elected Republican sheriff in Riverside County, both of whom endorsed our campaign in the last cycle. And I think we need more Democratic candidates to aggressively court the pro-democracy average Republican voters who are still out there because the electeds may not be, but their voters are and we absolutely can can win them. Yeah, I want to talk about that because I think of you as in that group of Democrats who has who have really tried to reach out to Republicans who are, you know, like so many of the bulwark crew and the people in my life, you know, who cannot stomach this Republican Party under Trump, but who have some more conservative values and who are now in an uneasy rapprochement with the Democratic Party. And we need them to win elections. Absolutely. One of my favorite uh, events that I've gone to was a Chamber of Commerce event in Norco, where most of the folks at the table were just talking about how we could get Eastvale, a city in, again, in my district, that its own zip code. It's been trying to get its own zip code so packages can be delivered. And a local assemblyman representative got up and said, you know, I'd really like it if everybody can support my bill to make sure that teachers out LGBT kids to their parents. And the entire group of not, you know, this is a Chamber of Commerce event in Norco, not a particularly progressive area, but everybody just kind of looked around at each other like, why is this person so obsessed with culture war issues when we've got just a, a practical issue in our district that needs to be resolved? And I think that there are a lot of moderate Republicans, and, and I'm friends with a lot of them. I mean, I again started, I spent my, the, started my career off with Schwarzenegger and had a family that really was split around the dinner table where you could have substantive disagreements with a sense of humor without it feeling existential. And I think that so many of us are craving a return to that kind of community. I believe that it's incumbent on people like me running and really all of us who have Republican family and friends to try to engage. I know it's not always the easiest thing to do, but if we aren't going into places that make us feel a little bit uncomfortable, I, I don't think that we are doing our job to unite the country. And it's one of my favorite things to do because you you realize how much there actually is in common and how much unites us when it comes to policy. And if you can get past the names that people have these preconceptions about, I think there really is a lot to bring us together. 
Yeah, and there's no reason for the government to be involved in what happens in children's lives. I mean, this is such an insane, you know, these people used to be small government conservatives. And now, I mean, I think the thing that I was so struck by was Ron DeSantis was recently saying that he's going to prosecute Bud Light. He's going to try to go after Bud Light for for the Anheuser-Busch Corporation, started by longtime Republican donors, because he felt that they had been too woke. And, you know, this is not what the government's job is not to punish businesses that they don't like. And we see this again and again in the House, too. You know, they're trying to fight against clean energy because they really just are afraid of progress. Right. I mean, how is that free market conservatism, right, to target your largest employer in the case of Florida, right, in the state, an entity that contributes billions to your economy every year and say, you know, I don't agree with your position on some issue and I'm going to use the power of the state to go after you. I mean, I think that makes a lot of Reagan Republicans recoil because that's not what America is about. This kind of punitive tit for tat culture warrior type conservatism. That's not the Republican Party of the 1980s. It's not the George W. Bush Republican Party. And a lot of people are put off by it. And I think it's an it's a testament to kind of the realignment that we've seen in districts like CA 41, where you have a group of people who are small government conservatives or even libertarians who don't think that the government should be dictating medical decisions for women, who don't think the government should be dictating medical decisions for parents and their kids. I mean, Ken Calvert's not a a trained physician. He's not a trained (laughs) psychotherapist. I don't know why anybody would ever want to have to pick up their phone and call that guy for input before they make a decision about their own life and body. And I I think that that kind of a coalition and also, you know, frankly, on gun rights, I, I think when you're looking at parents who have little kids who are in school or you've got folks worried about their grandparents going to the grocery store, some really basic common sense reforms that I've even had conversations with NRA members about that NRA members support. For example, red flag laws. I mean, I've got an opponent who doesn't believe that somebody who threatens to shoot up a school should have a no sale order put in place. That's remarkable. I mean, that's that is puts him in such a fringe element of our population that it's going to make him unelectable. And it's it's good news for me because I'm the one (laughs) brought it against him. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. Please come back. Thank you, Molly. Great to be on. Love the show. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. 
Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash news. That's LifeLock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. When you have health insurance, it's easy to think, I'm covered, no worries. Well, not so fast. Remember, your out-of-pocket costs are not covered by insurance. That can be a lot of money for your family. But how do you know you're not being overbilled? It's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. Unless you're a billing expert, how do you know your medical bills are accurate? HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your insurance. When your medical claims come in, HealthLock technology reviews the claim for errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. HealthLock makes it easy to find and fix hidden errors, so you pay only what you owe. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. Bottom line, insurance alone isn't enough. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. That's HealthLock.com. David Wallace-Wells is a New York Times columnist and author of The Uninhabitable Earth. Welcome to Fast Politics, David Wallace-Wells. I'm delighted to have you. Really good to be here. It's summer. It's fire season. (laughs) (laughs) Give me the top lines on summer 2023. Well, it just feels like every summer in the Northern Hemisphere now, we are seeing what look like unprecedented, record-breaking events all around the world, sort of at once. 
And then we kind of forget about them by the time the next summer rolls around and we see a whole nother wave and have another collective panic attack. This year seems a lot worse than last year. You know, the extreme heat is really scary. Across the U.S. we had weeks in Texas where the heat index was above 100 every day. We had, I think it was 18 straight days in Phoenix where it was 120. In Miami, we've had, you know, really scary heat indices up in the upper 90s over 100 for weeks on end. We've got these crazy sea surface temperature anomalies where we haven't seen ocean waters this hot, presumably for millions of years. And around the Florida Keys, the water is as hot as it is in a hot tub. It's like in a couple of places, it's registered over 100 degrees um, in the ocean water. We've had this unbelievable off the charts Canadian fire season where they've had you know, many multiples of their recent average fires burn and we're nowhere near the end of that season. And there's basically nothing we can do to stop those fires or stop that smoke from coming. And now just in the last few days, we've seen a lot of crazy, scary wildfire activity. The Mediterranean basin, which from like a global statistical perspective, isn't that big a deal. These are pretty small fires by the standards of Canada or California or Siberia or Australia. But in the context of pretty densely populated little islands where it happens, a lot of Europeans are on vacation right now. It looks pretty terrifying. You have like a large chunk of roads is burned, parts of Corfu. Sicily had its highest temperature reading ever yesterday, and now they've got wildfires like right outside of Palermo. So, you know, basically everywhere you look, you're seeing things that you never thought you'd see. And just today, a big study came out looking at, in particular, the heat waves in the US, China, and Europe, which found that, you know, all of these things which best would have been like once in every 250 year events and in some cases would have been totally impossible in a world without climate change are now one in 15 year events, one in five year events. So it's, you know, it's basically things that would have been impossible to imagine a generation ago are now so routine. We don't even clock them as especially unusual these days. And and that's where we are. I would love it if you would explain to us a little bit about why there isn't more of a kind of collective freak out about those. Well, I think the big answer is that we are capable of normalizing extreme weather at the same rate that it is accelerating. And that means that, you know, we're basing our expectations for this year and the next couple of years, really just on the experiences of the last few years, not on like a 20 year or 30 year timeline. And that means that even things that are basically off the charts feel merely like multiples of what we've had in the recent past. You know, heat wave that we've had in the U.S. the last couple of weeks, while really horrifying, is not that different from the heat wave that we had last year when also 100 million Americans were under extreme heat warnings. And so, you know, psychologically, we adapt extremely quickly. You know, our politics is broken in all the ways that we know. And so we don't have a lot of, you know, a lot of leadership calling out this issue. Mostly we're just like letting states and localities deal with it themselves. And I think most people respond to that rhetorical environment by treating what's happening as normal. I think our basic reflex is to see anything that's happening outside our window. If we're not ourselves like fleeing um, our homes, (laughs) it's normal. And that's not a great recipe for dealing with a rapidly changing environment because even if what 2025 looks like is not that different from 2023, If we tell ourselves that all of these incremental changes are perfectly acceptable, we're going to find ourselves in a completely different world a decade from now than the one we're living in today, when already we're living in a completely different world than the world our parents and grandparents lived in. Can you say a little more about that? Because that, I think, is really important. I mean, it feels like what we saw with COVID, I had always thought very naively, perhaps, that at some point, 
people would be like, this is enough. But that's not what's happened. The opposite has happened, right? Like we were much more alarmed. We were much more motivated. We were much more unified in our response to the pandemic when the death toll numbered in the hundreds or thousands than we were when it passed 100,000, than we were when it passed 500,000, than we were when we passed a million. I mean, it's amazing now looking, kind of looking back, quote unquote, on the pandemic, how much the memory of that experience was like based in the first couple of months and how much most of the duration of the, you know, the last few years we spent just kind of like accepting quite large volumes of human death and learning or bringing ourselves to be irritated by the relatively minor intrusions of mitigation measures that, you know, we were sort of asked to embrace. Like we, we just, we normalized that death rate so, so quickly. I mean, you know, I work at the Times that famously the Times put a banner headline on, you know, across all the columns of the front page. When 100,000 Americans died, they literally listed the names of every American who had died at that point. And we've now, depending on how you want to count, we've we've seen at least 11 times as many people as died at that point. Some measures are say as, mu as much as 15 times as many Americans have died at that point. And we're just not doing anything like the kind of memorialization or reckoning with that. Beyond even that, we are, I think, many of us looking back on the pandemic almost as though those deaths were inevitable and disconnected from our policy and telling stories about the last few years that are primarily about the way that they interfered with our daily lives and not about the fact that a million Americans died. And I think climate change is, you know, unfortunately already following a similar path, which is to say we kind of take for granted some large amount of suffering, judge our response based on the disruptions to our, to our lives and don't really focus on like the pretty grim impacts on the people who are suffering most. A thing I never saw before the pandemic was this idea that were, were these people who were like climate normalizers, you know, the way that you had anti-vaxxers, right? You have people who say like, you know, 115 is no big deal. We've had 115 forever. I mean, it feels like a very concerted effort. Well, I think that, you know, one thing that changed over the last couple of years is that Elon Musk bought Twitter and he changed a lot of the engagement algorithms, which yeah. means that you know, a lot of a lot of what someone like me sees now on social media is it's a lot more full of people who are skeptical, if not in outright denial of climate than were before. But I think it's also a natural social outgrowth of living through extremes, which is like one response we all have, even those of us who are really alarmed in living through some of these events is to say, well, we basically survived. And that's true. Like, you know, it's not like 80 percent of Phoenix is dead because of those temperatures. Right. Like most of Phoenix is surviving. They're going to have significant excess deaths this summer, I would guess. Um, but, you know, even significant excess deaths, you're still talking about something that in a city of several million people is functionally on the margins. And it's very easy, even kind of natural for those of us who are survivorship bias, but to, to survive those um, events and, and look back and say, OK, well, that may have seemed really scary you know, in prospect, but in retrospect, we made it. And I think that's, you know, we're, we're likely to see a fair amount more of that. And I don't even think that it's entirely unhealthy or unreasonable. I do think that like we can point to adaptations and innovations and social response to some of these really intense climate events and say, okay, well, like that didn't totally devastate us in the way that we might have expected. Human life will be damaged by these assaults from climate change going forward, but we may also be able to navigate them in a way that allows something like quote unquote normal life to continue. And in fact, probably we will find a way, even if that also involves 
normalizing, say, you know, 10,000 deaths a year every summer in Phoenix. I almost feel like we need to talk about what's happening in Texas, because that is a really interesting phenomenon. You have the reddest state filled with the biggest assholes, if you'll excuse my French. (laughs) I can say that because we're not on television. They're surviving on renewables. The Texas State Legislature tried to kneecap the renewable business this spring. The conservatives who are pushing that measure in the in the state legislature um, were pushed back by other conservatives who looked at the numbers and said, wait, if we limit renewable deployment, that means that energy prices are going to be higher. Right. And this seems to me to be a really significant reversal from where we were just a few years ago, where, you know, climate skeptical conservatives would say, well, we just need to let the market decide. We can't distort the market by subsidizing renewable energy. And they were kind of like they were free marketeers in the name of fossil energy. And now we're in a situation for a number of reasons, including, you know, the IRA, but also just natural market forces where renewables are a preferable alternative to fossil fuels. And you have fossil friendly conservatives now rallying against the force of the free market. So they're basically trying to stand in the way of what is naturally occurring in a place like Texas, where renewables are growing rapidly. Texas is the most renewable rich state in the country. I believe they have twice as much solar capacity as they had uh, on the grid even last year. And it's the reason they're not having blackouts at the moment, like you said. I think the, the longer term story here is really interesting in the sense of how quickly and how fully those trajectories will at least neutralize climate as a partisan issue and maybe even flip it or reverse it. Because In the year or so, almost a year since the IRA was passed, we've had much, much more clean energy investment in red states and red districts than we have in blue blue states and blue districts. And, you know, I think ultimately that is going to have a, a political impact. I don't know how quickly, I don't know how significantly, but I do think it's already notable when you look at the midterms that, you know, Republicans were just not running against the IRA. They were basically standing on the sidelines, not mentioning it. And I think, um, we're starting to see that sort of transformation of climate from a, predictable, partisan, polarizing issue to one in which, you know, the truth is like the market is doing its thing. And most people, even on the right side of the aisle, are at least comfortable with it, if not applauding it outright. That's hopeful in my mind, and I'm kind of surprised by it. So I'd love you to just talk about it for another second, because, you know, what I've seen with Ron DeSantis and some of these uh, conservatives is this active anti, you know, I mean, I, I'm thinking of Ron DeSantis this weekend said that Bud Light need to be punished for putting diversity and inclusion before capitalism or something to that effect. So I wonder just how much conservatives will try to punish green energy just because they think it works for them. You know, there's still some Certainly some resistance on the right, certainly some reflexive kind of culture war skepticism among Republicans across the country about climate issues. That's definitely there. It will continue to some extent. You still have a fair number of states attorneys general who are like fighting these ESG policies as a sort of Trojan horse for you know pushing back climate policies. I think, you know, all of that is happening. I don't mean to suggest that like we're all in Kumbaya land and everybody on the right is just, but I also think, you know, it's significant to me that like Ron DeSantis in building his presidential campaign, first of all, Ron DeSantis is like a, he's a missile is going down or whatever. He's not a sign of the future of the party. Even as he's building his presidential campaign, he's not screaming about clean energy. No, he's not. He's screaming about trans issues and schools and to some extent, 
you know, COVID restrictions and lockdowns, although I think that's a loser for him too. But, you know, in general, the party as a whole, while they retain some amount of climate skepticism and they're not exactly about to like make AOC Secretary of Energy or whatever, they are also not focused on energy issues and climate issues in the way that they were absolutely focused on healthcare in the aftermath of Obamacare. And you have a massive bill that passed by the narrowest of margins last fall for the IRA, a huge bill, probably three or four times the size that the CBO estimated because the legislators kind of tricked the CBO into making it seem like a smaller bill (laughs) was. And like the Republican response has been basically silence. I mean, you know, not totally silence. There have been little bursts of protests here and there, but they're basically like, okay, fine. Like, let that become law. Let that become the law (laughs) of the land. We're going to argue with you about all these totally trivial kind of virtual reality combat kinds of politics. And that's where that party is. Now, that's depressing. It's distressing. It's horrible for the country in a million ways. But I think it also leaves whole areas of policy to be directed by those people who really care about making a difference, which is to say primarily people on the left. It's not just climate policy, but climate is maybe the best illustration of that. Right. No, no, for sure. And it is quite interesting. One last question. This, the countries with the worst pro-fuel propaganda, America, Saudi Arabia, how much of what we're thinking is influenced by fossil fuels and how we experience the world is influenced by successful fossil fuel propaganda? I think it's really hard to untangle a lot of that stuff and say, you know, it's like Exxon's mind tricks as opposed to American culture, which has been shaped over decades by our love affair with like cars and the open road, which is in part because of what fossil fuel companies were doing, but also has a lot of other stuff going on. It's absolutely true that there has been a propaganda campaign around the world, but maybe most conspicuously in the US, and it has had some effect on keeping us invested in, connected in a way of life that is totally unsustainable. And this is not, you know, we often think of this as a really long-standing dynamic. As recently as 2016, the U.S. was not exporting a single molecule of oil or gas. By 2022, the U.S. was the largest exporter of each of those in the entire world. So, you know, it's not just a matter of companies slowing action, although they do that too. In certain areas, we've been dramatically expanding our footprint here, which is total indictment of us. And I think even more than the fossil fuel companies themselves, it's an indictment of the sort of the politicians who have enabled that to happen. You know, I think a lot about that famous appearance that Obama made towards the end of his presidency, maybe it was in the immediate aftermath when he left office in Texas, where he was bragging about making the U.S. the world's largest producer of of oil and gas, and then instructed the audience um, who were like all Texas oil and gas men to thank him and applaud. And, you know, I'm a fan of Obama's. I, I supported him as a president, but there's just a way in which we we tell ourselves that we're on the right side of history and make such large compromises with the forces of the fossil fuel industry that we we end up on the wrong side. Yeah. Thank you, David. I hope you'll come back. Thanks for having me. Great stuff. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, 
Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information live nation presents concert week now through may 14th get 25 dollars tickets to over 5,000 shows that's up to 75 percent off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 savage alanis morissette cage the elephant celeste barber dirk spentley fade hootie and the blowfish janet jackson kids bop kids megan trainer bissell pluma sarah mclaughlin get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just 25 dollars until now through may 14th Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.